Uh, Please open your Bibles to Matthew 24. Matthew 24 and 25 really form a unit that comes under the heading of the future. Last week, Devin ended his sermon on the first part of Matthew 24 by noting that we are all prone to false hopes that are promised by false Christs who announce a fake gospel of how to find the good life. And we're, we're hearing it all the time. This is the danger that the first generation of Christians faced, and this is the danger you and I face. We want to know what the future will bring so we can avoid the pain that might be coming and live our best lives in the face of it. And there's lots of people making promises of what's coming and how to take advantage of it. So I I, I introduce this this way to say that Jesus talking about the future, it's not like this is the only place you find people talking about the future. Everybody's talking about the future. Let me give you an example. The earth is being choked in the pollution that we humans spew into the air and water. And our technologists promise us that if we'll just bite the bullet and make the transition to all electric everything empowered by wind and solar energy, we'll save the planet and have a bright future. That's a promise based on a picture of what the future will become if we just do these things. Other technologists tell us that we can each have, we each have genetic predispositions to certain diseases. And these geneticists can test us for them and then predict what diseases will likely be in our future unless we take their advice and change our diet or get surgery or obtain some other promise of medical salvation. Or our yearning for the future might be quite simple, like trying to predict what questions your history teacher is going to put on tomorrow's test. Or we all look at the weather figure out whether our soccer game will be canceled because of rain predicted by AccuWeather. So we all love prophecy. Just don't call it prophecy. Instead, we speak of the pronouncements of science or the findings of pollsters predicting who will win the next election. We don't realize, and this is the interesting thing about the future. I I want you to think about this, and you may find this an odd thought, so I'm setting you up for that. Um, The future is already here. Now, uh, my granddaughter and I are having a conversation about this because she said, anytime you think about the present, it's already past. But now we're talking about the future, and I'm saying the future's already here. What I mean is that all the conditions that will bring about what is to come are already present in the world. We just don't know what they are or which conditions will be decisive. It could be that as we speak, some scientist is developing a technology in his basement which will solve all the problems of global warming. So the future is already present. 
We just don't know it. Or it could be that Russia's President Putin is about to launch a nuclear missile. We just don't know. And there are lots of voices out there who are telling us what is to come. And I want to tell you right now, they don't know either. In our day, the predictions about the future are all practical and material. But there's a deeper problem no one wants to talk about. Will God come to judge the earth? And if, as we fear, we expect him to come and judge the earth, when will that be? How will we know that he's about to arrive and call us to account? Now, the message of the Bible is that God will hold all human beings accountable for their sin, and he offers forgiveness and reconciliation and an invitation to life with him today in this fallen age and one day in a new heavens and a new earth free of pollution, disease, war, and justice, and all the sins of man, both small and great. That's promised in the future. This judgment and this salvation are all available today, right now, in our presence through God's Son, Jesus Christ. But in our text today, Jesus is telling His disciples, and every disciple who follows, He's telling us today how to prepare for the future. So we're also busy preparing for the future, whether it's for the temperature that's going to be outside today, or whatever that may be. The question the text presents us with is this. Are you expecting Jesus Christ to return? The disciples understood what Jesus said but they wanted to know when. They wanted to know when is he coming back. So read with me chapter 24, verses 1 through 3. Jesus left the temple. So he's just completed his public ministry. He's made pronouncements of judgment on the scribes and Pharisees. He's turned over the money changers' tables. He's made an uproar in Jerusalem. And he's done with public events. So now he's drawing away with the disciples. So Jesus, in verse 1, left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. It says in Mark, they were marveling at these beautiful buildings. And they were beautiful. But Jesus answered them, You see all these, don't you? Do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, so they're sitting on the Mount of Olives, by the way, which overlooks Jerusalem. So they're looking down on the temple and all the buildings associated with the temple in Jerusalem. And ringing in their ears is Jesus saying, it's all going to be flattened. And so they asked him, tell us, Jesus, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? So that's the big question. When's this going to happen? And how are we going to see that it's coming so we can prepare ourselves? When is Jerusalem going to be destroyed? Now, 
Jesus making that pronouncement, uh, it's like someone announcing that before the people of this generation have died, the U.S. Capitol will be in ruins, the White House will be used as a cow barn, the Washington Monument will be a pile of white rubble, and a statue of Buddha will be sitting on Abraham Lincoln's seat in that white pillared building on the Potomac. You'd say, that's absurd. You're crazy, John. Well, it was even more so for the Jews of Jesus' day. Jerusalem has been the point of national identity for Israel, Jerusalem and the temple, for 940 years. That's when the temple was built by Solomon. That's a long time. Not only that, Jerusalem was where God came down to bless his people. Jerusalem was what held them together as a nation and a people. To have Jerusalem flattened was to put an end to Israel as an identifiable nation in the mind of the Jews. So in verses 4 through 35, Jesus speaks to the disciples' question. When will these things be? And he says that not only will the city be destroyed, but there'll be economic and political upheaval with wars and famines. And in the mix of it all, Jesus' disciples will be persecuted. And as Devin said last week, there's a number of ways to understand this text, especially the time framing of the passage. What was something that happened in the first century, what's still to come in the future. And Devin and I have both decided, wisely I think, not to get into that here. And one of the reasons I don't think it's appropriate to get into that here is because we want to proclaim what is obvious and clear in this text. And what's clear is that in A.D. 33, right before he went to the cross, Jesus predicted that Jerusalem would fall into utter destruction. And in A.D. 70, that prophecy came true. The unthinkable happened, just as Jesus said it would. Now, one of the reasons this is significant has to do with what God has said in the Bible about prophets. If you look in Deuteronomy 18, God tells his people when to listen to a prophet and when to ignore a prophet. And what it says in Deuteronomy 18 is if what the prophet says about a prediction in his day comes true, you can trust him for other prophecies of the future. In A.D. 33, Jesus made a prediction that came true less than 40 years later in the very details described in Matthew 24, 15 to 22. So Jesus was exactly right about Jerusalem. And Matthew's initial audience probably assembled a short time, the, the first ones to hear this book read to them, uh, probably assembled sometime after A.D. 60. And so they read this and heard about these horrific events. And they would live to see the Romans devastate the city in A.D. 70. Jesus is a proven prophet of the Lord. So we need to listen to what he says. 
So this is what he says about when these things are going to happen. Going to happen within our generation. Some may be for a future time, but the things that he said about Jerusalem being destroyed happened. What he predicted in verse 2 came to pass. But what about the second question in verse 3? What will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? Now I want you to notice these are two very different questions, two very different topics. The first has to do with the destruction of Jerusalem. Verse 2, there will not be one stone left upon another that will not be thrown down. But the second question has to do with the sign of Jesus coming and the close of the age. It's this question that Jesus takes up beginning in verse 36. And he'll continue to answer this question all the way through chapter 25. Okay, so we're, we're basically getting an answer to a question in a chapter and a half. So now I think we're ready to read chapter 24. We're going to pick up where we left off last week with verse 36. Concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in a field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at their proper time? Blessed is that servant whom the master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour that he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. These are God's very words. So this is Jesus' answer to the question of the sign of his coming and the close of the age. Not going to happen. There will be no sign. The text stresses the unexpectedness of his return. Now, this will come as a shock to some American Christians who have told us that the signs of the times are upon us and that Jesus will be back any minute. 
I came to faith in the early 1970s when a lot of prophets were telling us that Russia was fixing to invade Israel, sparked by Arab hostility and a lust for Middle Eastern oil. As the Russians invaded in the valley of Armageddon in Israel, Jesus would return. Well, it didn't work out that way. But that's what they said. I'm not sure how they got to a place of being able to say that because verse 36 says explicitly concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Now, some have taken this to mean that you can get it down to the month and the year, just not the day and the hour. That doesn't fit the text. Back in 1987, someone published a book entitled 88 Reasons Jesus is Returning in 1988. I think he had it down to the month of October. Well, it didn't happen. And he had the audacity to announce that he made a math error and it was actually 1989. (laughs) So we get confused and we look for things about the future because we want to know and we want to protect ourselves. But Jesus says, I'm not telling Jesus' point in this passage is that when he returns, no one will anticipate it happening at that moment. The day of the Lord, that's a very common phrase you find in Old Testament prophecy. It's shorthand for God's coming to judge the world. It's not shorthand for a 24-hour period. Jesus' burden is that we're prepared for an event that only God knows its timing. The heart of the passage is verse 44. Okay, so here's the claim of the passage on us. Right, right in the middle, verse 44. Therefore, you must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. He's not speaking of a literal hour, but of the fact that we cannot expect when He will return. We can't tell the time of His return until it's here. A few weeks ago, Devin was teaching us about death and that death comes to us all. And he used an illustration that I thought was exceptionally helpful. Each week on Sunday morning, we meet in this room where the lights are controlled by some kind of a sensor. If you're a guest and the lights suddenly go out, you'll notice the rest of the church acts like nothing happened because it happens every week and then someone runs to the light switches and turns them back on we know that the lights are going to switch off although it hasn't happened yet and I was wondering as I wrote this sermon if it might just happen when I said it (laughs) to really bring impact to the illustration but I'll leave that with you we just don't know when this is Jesus point We know He will return as promised. We just don't know when. So instead of looking for signs, Jesus tells us to be ready. Therefore, you must be ready. And verses 37 through chapter 25 are variations on this theme. You must be ready. 
how to be prepared for the return of Jesus Christ and the close of the age. So we're going to take a look at four of them in today's text. Number one, you must be ready because unexpected judgment has come to the world before. Verse 37, Jesus speaks of the days of Noah. In those days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. They were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. Now, Noah knew a flood was coming. If he didn't expect it, he would not have built a 450-foot boat in his backyard. His neighbors knew he was expecting a flood, but they didn't believe it, or they would have gotten their own boats. What Noah did not know, what nobody knew, was when the rains would begin. So Jesus tells us that if the world looks as normal as ever, with people getting married and enjoying meals together, even through difficult times, we can't assume that what appears to be normal could not come to an end in a moment with Jesus' return. Okay, so, so don't take the fact that it's been 2,000 years since he said this. and the world's gone through some bad times. Seem to be doing just fine today. No, his judgment will come at an unexpected time and it happened before, it's going to happen again. Number two, you must be ready even if the world is mixed between those who believe and those who do not. And so we have the picture of two men in a field, two women grinding grain at a mill, one taken, the other left. It's not clear what taken means. In verse 31, the verb refers to people chosen by God for salvation. Or it might refer to verse 39 and those taken in judgment by the flood. The point is that the world is a mixture of those who look for Jesus' return and those who don't look for his return. We all look outwardly the same. We go to the same workplace, do the same jobs, we work together. The image of the two women grinding grain is especially vivid because the way these mills would work is it took two, it was a large round stone, you put the grain underneath the stone and it would be crushed. One woman would turn the stone one way and then the other would turn it back 180 degrees. So suddenly one is taken and the others there can't even get the job done. It was this, they're, they're, they're just working together. There's no forewarning. They're turning the stone. Suddenly one is taken. She would be taken at the close of the age and the coming of the Son of Man. So in this mixed world that we live in where some expect Jesus' return, some don't, that, that, that is the way it's going to be. And it's not always going to be, we know from other parables, obvious there's going to be wheat and tear that, tares that look the same to us. So we've got to be ready even if the world is mixed. Number three, you must be ready by staying awake. In verses 42 to 44, Jesus talks about the master of a house if he'd known what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. 
Therefore, the Son of Man, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So Jesus is calling for constant vigilance. Not so we can figure out the time of His return, but so we can be ready for Him because we don't know the time. If you live in a neighborhood that has regular break-ins, you've got to constantly be on watch. The doors and windows are locked and lights are on at night. Your radar is always on for an intruder. have got to stay awake. So how do we stay awake? Obviously, we must go to bed every night. Jesus' point is that our expectation of His return should be constant. We should live like He could arrive at any time. And that is further illustrated in the last section of this passage. Number four, you must be ready like a faithful and wise servant. Verses 45 to 51. Who's faithful and wise? Verse 45. Well, it's the one that when the master comes back from his journey, finds this manager of his other servants doing exactly what he wanted him to do while he was gone. And if he finds him that way, he'll give him a promotion over everything he owns. He'll be able to run not just the staff, but the entire business. But if the wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour that he does not know. (laughs) And then, this is awful, he will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we have two servants. One works continuously to manage the household faithfully. In other words, he's doing everything the master told him to do. And wisely, when situations change, his first question is, okay, what does the master want for this house? How does he want me to take care of it? And so he is always working with the master in mind and faithfully working and anticipating that when he comes back, he wants the master to find the house tended the way he expected. He knows what his master's goals are, And he works toward them in changing situations. But as he works, there's no accountability. No one checks in on him to see how he's doing. But that doesn't matter to him. He keeps to his mission whether he expects the master to return that day or in 500 days. When the master does show up, He sees that his servant has met his every expectation, so he gives him a promotion. He'll go from managing his staff to managing all his property. But then there's the other servant. Jesus calls this one wicked. The wicked servant says to himself, my master hasn't checked in on me in years. Who knows what's happened to him? So I'm going to run things the way I like them. So he mistreats the staff and spends his master's time and money on his own fun, partying when he should be 
working. Until suddenly, one day, in a moment, his master shows up at the house. And the place is a mess. And the servants look awful. And the boss is down the street at the bar. Verse 51, which describes what happens to the wicked servant, uses Jewish expressions and Jewish hyperbole to capture punishment that is truly horrible. Now think about it. You can't weep and gnash your teeth if you've already been cut into pieces. The point is that if you are not faithful and expectant, your punishment will be swift and severe. This is really sobering. Jesus is telling us in this passage that we cannot expect when He'll return, but we should live like He's going to return at any moment. That's the point. Be ready. You must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So, I hope at this point that the passage is clear to you. It's not a difficult passage to understand as you sit and look at it. But there's something I need to say to you, something crucial that we could miss if we isolate this text from the rest of Scripture. So I want I want to just take a minute to think about it more broadly. You could get the impression from this passage that our salvation is based on what we're doing at the moment of Jesus' return. If we're busy doing what He wants, that's what qualifies us for entering His heavenly rest. When I was young, uh, you don't see many bumper stickers anymore, but bumper stickers in the 60s and 70s were like a thing. And so a lot of people would put on their, Christians would put on their bumper sticker, Maranatha, Jesus is coming. And so some other enterprising individuals made a bumper sticker in response that said, Jesus is coming, look busy. (laughs) Because their impression was that if Jesus finds us busy, that's all we need in order to enter into His heavenly kingdom. That's not the point of the passage. The point is that faith works. We are saved by faith in Jesus to forgive our sins and unite us with Himself so that we're approved and loved by His Father. That's how we're saved. That's what qualifies us to enter into this heavenly existence with Jesus. The transforming effect of this salvation is that we yearn to do what He loves. And in fact, we do the things He loves and avoid the things He hates. Of course, we fail at times, but we always admit our failings and get it back up and try again. That's what it looks like to be working faithfully in anticipation of His return. Our faith drives it. Faith 
as Hebrews 11, 1 puts it, is the conviction of things not seen. Okay, we can't see Jesus coming back. He didn't give us any signs so we'd know when it was about to happen. But we have a conviction that He will come. Whether we see signs or not, He's returning just as He said. So that conviction about the future orients your present. New International Version translates this verse, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. We hope for Jesus' return. We are certain of it. We expect to see Him one day face to face. This affects everything. As James puts it, your faith proceeds into works. Not works to earn anything from God, but works that are in keeping with His character and with your expectation of His return. Remember how I said earlier that the future is already in the present? Maybe that was a new thought to you. When you live expecting Jesus' return, you do just that. You bring His future promise into your world at present. So we, in a sense, the way we live today is we are living in a future that we still have faith for. The future comes to the present. This is what should be guiding our lives. Our Lord will return. He means everything to us. He has already given us eternal life, the gift of the Holy Spirit in our, in our hearts. And so as we go through our day-to-day existence, it's like, what can I do for Him today? It might include getting your expense account right. It might include changing diapers might include any number of normal things, but you're doing them anticipating he's about to be back. It could be any time. So when we look at our lives in light of Jesus' words here, we're forced to ask ourselves what our day-to-day life reflects. What expectations are we working toward? And this is, this is where I, I, I want to challenge you to think about this today, okay? What are you expecting and working for? Because we live in a society that is bringing us through its advertising and its habits, bringing all these expectations into our lives. Are we working for a future of ease? Working for a worry-free retirement? Working to excel in sports so we can be applauded by others? Or do we participate with our time and our money and our athletics and our work? Are we anticipating Jesus' return? Are we working for those things we know please our Master? And whether he returns today or in 50 years, we work the same. 
to please the one who loved us by laying his life down for us, to serve the one who served us by giving his life as a ransom for us. So the the question this text brings upon us is, are you looking for his return? Does your life, your hopes and dreams, your desires for the future proceed into daily activities that seek to please your master? It kind of simplifies life. So many of the bucket list things, they all fade away. What's the master want me to do? What's faithfulness look like to him right now? For the people I serve, for the people I'm among, for the people I have some degree of authority over. How can I serve them in a way that will please the master so that if he walks in the door next minute, I'll say, ah, I've been expecting you. Come on in. We cannot be driven by fear. Only love will fuel the kind of perseverance in doing good that Jesus expects of us in this text. And we read the stories of people who unnoticed, unrecognized, no accountability, and you find out that privately their service to the Lord was faithful for many, many years. They never were applauded for it, recognized for it. Nobody had a dinner for them. But they were doing it for Jesus because they were anticipating a better banquet, honoring a better king. That's why we must always find our way back as we ponder these things and as we ponder what motivates us and drives us to persevere in doing what our master expects of us in this life, looking for his return, we always find our way back to his death for us. That is why we take the meal he gave us. So we remember, I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price, the price of the blood of the Son of God given in sacrifice for us. Love drove him to die for us. Love drove him to be faithful to his Father in heaven and die for us. And we live in response to an imitation of that love. So every week we ponder, he actually did this. He did this with me in mind. In the divine mind, he was dying for me. And so we're going to transition now and prepare ourselves to eat this meal with Jesus and let us, as Devin so often says in introducing the service, reorient ourselves to reality. This is what our lives are about. This is what we're working for. And he set the pace by going to the cross for us. Jesus invites us to this meal and he invites all those who have put their, placed their faith in him and have been baptized in water in response to their faith. So if you've yet to put your faith in Jesus, uh, this meal is not for you. He does not invite you to this meal. But we hope and we pray that you'll join us someday in this meal. And we're delighted that you're here to hear this message today. 
uh, that, that you can hear about this Jesus who is returning and he's returning to do good to you if you will simply put your trust in him. So let's pray. Lord, Lord, we need a total reorientation because we get confused about the future and we think life is so complicated and you've just given us a few things to do and they're all oriented around you and serving you, the one who has already served us in ways unimaginable. We do things to serve you that anybody could do. You did things to serve us that nobody else could do. And so we just want to follow you, Jesus. And we want to persevere in doing good. And we want to be the kind of people who any moment of any day, if you arrive, we're able to say, I've been expecting you. So now come and meet us in this meal so we can orient ourselves to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.